Hey there, and welcome back to the Morning Moxie Show. I'm Alicia Sharp, your host, and today on the show we have Erwin McManus, and he's being interviewed by Ed Milet. And I love this interview. I was listening to it while I was mowing the yard one day, and it just really blessed me because the way that Erwin thinks and his journey with God is not light at all. Like he went through so many different things. He's tried, quote unquote, other religions. He's he's studied so many different things. And he landed at Christianity. He landed at Jesus and that relationship because God pursues us. And that is the difference between Christianity and any other religion. Religion is man's way of getting to God. Christianity is a relationship with the God of the universe and how he made a way for us to be in fellowship with him, to be in communion with him, and to be one with him through Jesus Christ. It's fascinating. And this interview is fascinating, and it's going to be going on for the next few days. I hope that it really impacts you and that you listen to it and that you listen to it multiple times maybe even because some of the stuff that Irwin says and some of his perspectives really get to the heart of of us as human beings and our relationship with Jesus. It's so incredibly fascinating. I love this. Hope you enjoy it. Here's Erwin McManus and Ed Milet. So one of the things I admire about you is that you came to your faith, as I understand it, a little bit later than most people in your family. You were sort of an atheist for a decent little part of your upbringing, right? Well, we grew up pretty much <laughs> ir- irreligious. I'm an immigrant okay. from El Salvador. And so we have a little bit of a Roman Catholic kind of like backdrop because yep. everyone in Latin America kind of did. Yep. And, but we never went to mass and it wasn't a part of our life. And, uh, but my, um, my brother was an atheist and I was more of a mystic. What's a mystic? I, I, I didn't believe in a personal God, but I believed that there was something spiritual, there's something transcendent, there's something more than the material world. Gotcha. I just didn't know what it was. Okay. And then my mom uh, brought, a, brought a Buddha home when we were young, and so we kind of became Buddhists, and then later she started studying Judaism and, and became more informed by Judaism. And uh, by the time I was in sixth grade, I read every mythology book in the library. So I, I was always searching, but I just didn't know what I was searching for. But I think I knew why. There was a, a massive void and emptiness inside of me, a, a disconnection from people and the world around me, and I was trying to find some kind of answer to the existence of me. I think everybody is. Yeah, I agree. And I think that there's an ongoing conversation in our souls and our hearts that are constantly trying to understand ourselves and what this life means, where are we going when our physical body doesn't work anymore. And, um, and I think that knowing, you have this unbelievable analogy that you use about phantom pain. Oh, yeah. That I think the entire world is about to benefit from. If you've ever wondered, do you wonder, if you're listening, I think this is a perfect example as to the fact that you are. So explain that. Sure. Well, I was a straight D student, first through 12th grade. Straight D? D, yeah. Okay, that's impressive. I mean, I might have flunked out a few classes too, <laughs> but I averaged around a D and barely graduated from high school. They just, they graduated me just not to have me back. I didn't go to college right away, just floated around working odd jobs, worked construction, worked as a lumberjack, worked as a carpenter, you know, just did all kinds of things. And, and I begged my way into college, realizing my life had no direction and found a school that would take me on condition. And then I stepped into a philosophy class, and next thing I knew, I became a philosopher and then suddenly started making straight A's and suddenly discovered a part of myself that had been asleep. Uh, and I became what I would call a Socratic. I really was uh, influenced by the Stoics and the teachings of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. And this kind of began for me a real conscious search for meaning in life. And one of the things I talk about with Phantom Pain is that one of the dynamics of Phantom Pain is that 
when a soldier loses an arm or a leg, they, for years, if not for the rest of their life, they have experiences where they think that arm is still there, where that leg is still there. They actually feel pain in that leg, even though it's not there. Yeah. And one of the um, elements that has to exist for, pan for phantom pain is that you had to have lost something that once was yours. And what I've come to believe is that ideals, human ideals are the phantom pain of the soul. Uh, just the ideas, let's say, of world peace, when people say they want world peace. Where do we get the concept of world peace? Because we've never done a world with peace. When we think about things like justice for all, where do we get this concept that everyone would have justice? We've never known a world except the world of injustice. When we think of ending poverty or ending disease or ending homelessness, where do we get these concepts, these ideals, have never been experienced in human history. Right. And so I, I'm convinced that these human ideals are the phantom pain of the soul. They're, oh. they're our souls remembering what humans are supposed to be like. Oh. And, that, and it's our longing to reclaim who we are. Even like certain words like, um, where you say something's unnatural for a human or something's inhumane. How can something be inhumane if a human being did it? Right. Well, I mean, when we see a killer whale, uh, eating a seal. I, I've watched them where they take the seal and throw it in the air while it's still alive. And then it comes down and starts swimming away and they come up to it and throw it in the air. And they're so delicate with the seal, they don't kill it. Yeah. Until the seal is so tired, it can't swim away and then they, they eat it. So they're playing this game with the seal, but the seal doesn't like the game. And <laughs> we never say that, that that killer whale's inhuman. We just say it's just natural for the seal. When a tiger chases down a gazelle and, and consumes it while it's fighting for its life. We never say that's inanimal. But when a human being does something, when someone walks in and kills students at an elementary school or someone randomly shoots eight or 10 people in a, in a grocery store, we know that's inhuman, that's inhumane. The reason we have this sense of knowledge is that we somehow know that the way human beings are living their lives is beneath being human. We're the only species that doesn't know how to be the species. That's called therapy. <laughs> I mean, you know, gazelles are not in therapy. Beavers are not in therapy. Kangaroos are not in therapy. They just know how to be the species. Mm -hmm. Human beings have the highest intention and we're the only species that can live outside of our intention. Gosh. And I think that's like the core of depression. Mm. You cannot be depressed if you cannot imagine a different self, a different you, a different life, a different world. Depression is that your reality doesn't match to the ideals that are haunting you. And so I think actually even like depression and sense of despair and this anxiety and stress that all of us struggle with, those are actually beautiful reminders that we're meant for more. Oh my gosh, Erwin. As you say that, what I think is, by the way, everybody, now you know I wanted Erwin. He's easier for me today, just so that you all know. But I wanted to share him with you because, and you won't take, you're so humble, but Erwin's a brilliant man, and he's a special man, and he's got this incredible anointing uh, to communicate thoughts, and by the way, and possess thoughts that not everybody's capable of possessing, as you've just seen. And that's important to me because I think there's a segment of the world that hasn't yet accepted a faith or a God because somehow they think that that's less intellectual. That somehow sure. that if I have these thoughts that, uh, you know, that uh, I don't believe in science, which you and I both sort of came to our faith almost the reverse that way, which I'd like you to talk about in a minute. But this idea of depression that you said, as you were talking, I thought, 
That is so true that we have this ideal or this comparison of what could be and that's right. what depresses one because I think a depressed person compared to potentially a non-depressed person isn't experiencing more negative things in their life necessarily or more turmoil or more anxiety. That's right. It's, yeah. it's perhaps maybe the lack of believing in some other space. So I, for you, when you found faith, was it, you were sort of pursuing it almost scientifically. You wanted to prove it to some extent, did you not? Well, I was, I, I was pursuing it at least philosophically. Okay. I was trying to find answers that made sense in a holistic way. Okay. And what became really discouraging to me is, as I read philosopher after philosopher after philosopher, was I, I realized that they were in the same place I was. <laughs> and, uh, right. They were trying to make sense of life. Mm -hmm. And so eventually, I think my greatest comfort wasn't in the answers. It was in the questions. The fact that w there might be a thousand different answers. You know, you're, you're a Christian, another person's a Buddhist, another person's a Muslim, another one's an atheist, another one's an agnostic. And if you're anything like me, you've been several of those along the way <laughs> trying to find meaning in life. But the questions were always the same. And I realized, wait a minute, seven billion people are all asking the question, why? And, and no one teaches them that question. I mean, I have two kids, and the first question they began to ask as children was why. They didn't ask what, where, when, who. Those are more important questions. Those are functional questions for survival. Why is not a survival question. Mm. Why is an intrinsic question of the image of God in a person's soul. We need the why, not just the who, when, what, where, when, and how. Mm. And, and so for me, I was driven by the why, trying to find out what is the reason for life. And then I started looking at religions and I was pretty much open to everything. Okay. I, I, I didn't have anything that I had written off except maybe Christianity, I have to admit. I, is I, that right? I, yeah, <laughs> I, I did. And I'm not sure why, but I was in a philosophy class and a professor read a passage in the Old Testament where it seems like God tells his people to go kill people for no reason. And then the professor read that passage and said, and this is supposed to be the God of love. And we all laughed, I laughed too. Yeah. And so in like 30 seconds, I discounted Christianity. And, uh, but in the middle of all my pursuit, I, uh, I started hearing about Jesus and, um, and I wasn't resistant, but I wasn't open. Okay. You, you know, it, it, I, was, I, I became resistant as I got closer to a point of intersection mm -hmm. because I heard this thing about Jesus saying he was the truth. I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute. When you give your life to Jesus, you're not allowed to pursue truth anymore. And so for me, it was a misunderstanding from the other side. And because I didn't want to become a dogmatic, closed-minded, yeah. condemning human being. I love pursuing truth. I love the search for the uncertain and the mysterious. And, and so this idea that there was, quote, a truth, and once you have it, you're right for the rest of your life, wasn't appealing to me at all. It was when I finally understood that what Jesus was saying, no, no, no. When he says, I am the truth, he's talking about he's the trustworthy one. And that all truth exists because something can be trusted. And if there isn't a God who can be trusted, then there really isn't this thing that we would call truth. And, and so I realized the fundamental question for me is, do I believe God can be trusted? And, and so I looked at all these religions and I realized, oh, they all have something in common. They all give us a system of how we can get to God of how we can attain God's love or his acceptance or his forgiveness or get that ultimate state of consciousness, whatever it may be. But Jesus was the only one that had a different narrative. Everything else said, this is what you need to do to get to God. With Jesus, it was, this is what God did to get to you. And, Whoa, and so I went, okay, you know, I, I have a process of elimination where 
any God that demands of me things I am incapable of to earn his love is not worthy of my worship mm. or of my belief. Mm. But if, when I love someone, when my kids were little, my love for them wasn't contingent on what they did for me. I was the one who loved my children unconditionally. In fact, when my son was like uh, three years old, at the dinner table one night, I hope it's okay if I say this, you know, but he, he said to his mom, you know, I don't love you. And his mom started crying at the dinner table. And, uh, and he, of course he loved his mom. He just learned that that phrase had power. <laughs> and so we got in the bed that night and, and he said, uh, I said, Aaron, I love you. And he said, well, I don't love you. And I said, well, you know, I said, that's okay. He said, because I have enough love for both of us. And then he paused, he goes, well, dad, how do I know if I love you? Like, he's a very philosophical, deeply thoughtful from, person. Really? <laughs> he goes, how do I know if I love someone? And, uh, and, and I told him, I said, you know, right now in your life, buddy, what's more important is that you know you're fully loved. And, uh, and as you know that you're fully loved, you're going to understand love more and more. And one of the things that I realized about God was like, if my relationship with God was dependent on how much I love God, I'm in trouble. But my relationship with God is actually dependent on how much God loves me. And Jesus is the singular narrative of the divine that says, no, God did what was necessary to get to you. That through God stepping into human history, taking on flesh and blood, dying on a cross, uh, being risen from the dead, that that wasn't God waiting on us to get to him. That was God getting to us at any cost. And by the way, if you think the central principle of the universe is love, then of course the ultimate act of love is going to be sacrifice. So it makes perfect sense to me because God is love, that the ultimate expression of God's love was the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. So I'm 50 years old and I feel like I'm a pretty faithful guy. I've been a Christian a long time. I've never heard it said that way in my life. That, it, it's a huge impact. It's not how I can get to God. It's what God did to get to me. Yeah. That is uh, profound and uh, makes, me very, makes me very emotional. Um, but I think that's why we actually know love more profoundly, not when someone loves us, but when we love that person. And we all, it, we all desperately long to be loved because it validates our worth. But when we love someone unconditionally, it actually makes us more like God. That was Erwin McManus, interviewed by Ed Milet, and you can find that on YouTube if you search under Is God For Me? Relationship versus Religion with Erwin McManus. And again, that's on the Ed Milet Show. You can also find out more information about Erwin at his church's website, which is mosaic.org, and you can find out more information about Ed Milet at edmilet.com. I encourage you to check them both out, and I hope that you have a fabulous day today and that you know that God is for you and that you can live a 320 life more than you can imagine. God bless.